God began his assault of the gods of Egypt with the Nile. The story is found for us in Exodus chapter 7, beginning in verse 14. The scriptures say, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is stubborn. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, just as he is going out to the water, and position yourself to meet him on the bank of the Nile. And you shall take in your hand the staff that was turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, so that they may serve me in the wilderness. But behold, you have not listened up to now. This is what the Lord says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I am going to strike the water that is in the Nile with the staff that is in my hand, and it will be turned into blood. Then the fish that are in the Nile will die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will no longer be able to drink water from the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and extend your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, over their streams, over their pools, and over all their reservoirs of water so that they may become blood, and there will be blood through all the land of Egypt, both in containers of wood and in containers of stone. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the water that was in the Nile was turned into blood. Then the fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the soothsayer priests of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house, with no concern even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile for water to drink, because they could not drink from the water of the Nile. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. The gods associated with the Nile were Hapi and Knum. Richard Wilkinson, in his book, The Complete Gods and Goddesses of Ancient Egypt, has described these gods thusly. Hapi. The god Hapi was primarily identified by the Egyptians as the inundation of the Nile. Its yearly flooding, which brought fertility to the land throughout, through widespread watering and the new silt spread over the fields by the swollen river. While it's often stated that Hapi was purely this inundation rather than simply the Nile itself, there are some indications of overlap so that it is sometimes possible to characterize the god as representing the divine power of the Nile in general. Kanum was one of Egypt's most important ram gods and was associated with the Nile and with the creation of life. Particularly linked to the first cataract, Kanum was said to control the inundation of the Nile from the caverns of that region, and as a result of this power as well as the inherent procreative power of the ram, the god was viewed as a personification of creative force. His association with the Nile and with its fertile soil perhaps contributed to his portrayal as a potter, who was said to have shaped all living things upon his wheel. What these divine descriptions help to reveal is the role that the Nile played in Egyptian culture. It's not too much to say that the Nile was Egypt. It was the life-giving waters of the Nile and the annual flooding of the river that allowed the Egyptians to build their kingdom along its shores. The farmland that this annual cycle fertilized was attributed to the god Hapi, and the waters themselves were said to be governed by Kanum. Both of these deities were associated with fertility, which was a common theme in the Egyptian pantheon. The Egyptian people drew their sustenance from the Nile, and the gods associated with the governance of these forces were honored by the Egyptians, particularly by those who lived and worked in close proximity to the river. The Egyptians believed something that the First Testament teaches as well. They believed that the governance of the world was placed in the hands of spiritual beings. 
According to the First Testament, those beings were created by the one God of all creation, and they were assigned their tasks by him. This arrangement lies behind a great deal of the imagery and symbolism of the First Testament, and there are a few passages in which it has been described quite clearly. Perhaps the most familiar of these sorts of passages is the description of the pre-flood world in Genesis chapter 6. But the clearest may be Psalm 82. It reads this way. God takes his position in his assembly. He judges in the midst of the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Save them from the hand of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, God, judge the earth, for you possess all the nations. In this psalm, God has been presented as seated in the midst of a great assembly, calling to judgment the spiritual beings, Elohim in Hebrew, who govern the kingdoms of the earth. The Egyptians believed these spiritual overseers were divine and worthy of worship in their own right. When God turned the Nile to blood, God was inviting the Egyptians to call upon the deities that they believed superintended the Nile and its waters to save them from God's curse. Interestingly, the Egyptian magicians were able to duplicate the plague. That is, they did turn water into blood, but they could not purify the waters. God was demonstrating his authority over the domains of the gods of Egypt. The Nile was the foundation of the culture of Egypt. The rhythms of their lives were dictated by the rising and falling of its waters. Egyptian horticulture depended upon the annual flooding of the Nile, and famine came to Egypt when too much or too little water flowed through it. By turning the Nile to blood, God invited the Egyptian people to question the stability and strength of the foundation of their culture. Without the Nile, there would be no Egypt. If the Nile could be changed to blood by the command of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then Egyptian culture stood helpless before him. The same gods associated with the Nile in ancient Egypt are worshipped in the West today. However, today the foundation of Western nations is not to be found in natural resources like water. Western nations are founded on ideologies and principles. In the United States, the Nile's closest analog is the Constitution. The structure, principles, and guarantees of the United States Constitution provide the foundation of the American way of life, much as the Nile dictated the ancient Egyptian way of life. Each of the nations of the West have ensconced foundational principles that dictate their national polity, and the citizens of these nations are called to worship these foundational principles by honoring them, paying homage to them both in public and in private, and by sacrificing themselves for them. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, is making war against the gods of the West, much as he made war against the gods of Egypt in the book of Exodus, and the first god that has been assaulted is the god of nation. The ancient Egyptians called this god Hapi and Kanum. We call it the Constitution. COVID-19 has been the blood in the water. The affliction of COVID-19 and the desire of the nations of the West to bring it under control has turned the Constitution to blood. The nations of the West are reneging on their promises of freedom and liberty in a desperate attempt to purify the waters of the Nile. But their efforts are only evidencing the fragility of the foundation on which our polities are built. This revelation is the work of God. As he demonstrated his mastery of the waters of the Nile, 
So he is demonstrating his power over the promises Western nations have made to each other in our various organizing documents. God is demonstrating that our promises to each other are weak, and we can be chased off of them by the slightest of provocations from God. The real God of nations are not constitutions or covenants, but fear. God revealed this to Egypt when he turned the Nile to blood, and he is revealing it to the nations of the West as a disease turns our constitutions to ash. So what are Christians to do? How are we to live in cultures under judgment and under the governance of nations who are revealing their own lack of commitment to their professed principles? How far must our submission to governing authorities extend? Perhaps the Apostle Paul's exhortations to the Christians of Rome, in Romans chapter 13 verses 1 through 7, will provide guidance to followers of Jesus in these days. The scriptures say, Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. In this passage, the Apostle Paul has exhorted the people of God to display our submission to governing authorities in two primary ways. First, because all earthly authorities are instituted by God and fall under his lordship, we must submit through lives of obedience. That's the essence of chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, which says again, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a servant of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. In verse 1, Paul has declared that God is the ultimate agent of all authority. And for that reason, rebelling against governing authorities is rebellion against the ordinance of God. This confession may be hard to believe, particularly when governments operate in violation of the revealed will of God, or even in violation of their own professed principles. Paul's comments, however, are not foreign to such a context. In fact, Paul penned these words in the midst of the Roman Empire, an empire who, in more than one season of the first century AD, persecuted Christians, tortured them, and put them to death. And still, Paul has declared that followers of Jesus must seek to live lives of obedient submission to such authorities. Perhaps more hidden in the text, however, is the subversive element in Paul's de description. In Roman culture, Caesar was seen as the ultimate authority. By declaring Caesar as an intermediary agent, Paul has placed even Caesar under the lordship of God, highlighting the underlying principle that obedience to God outweighs obedience to Caesar. This is not a surprising conviction for Paul to hold, given that such is taught throughout the Christian scriptures. Both the principles of general submission and divinely required disobedience 
are evidence, for instance, in the life of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, we're told that King Darius was convinced to outlaw all prayers to any person or God other than himself. As a devout and Torah-observant follower of Yahweh, the one God of all creation, Daniel found himself in a conundrum. He could not submit both to God and to the king at the same time. Therefore, Daniel publicly rebelled against the king's edict in deference to God. So the insistence that God's authority outweighs that of earthly rulers seems clear enough. Even so, an often passed over detail at the beginning of this portion of Daniel's story is that Daniel's fellow administrators looked high and low for a way to get rid of Daniel, and they could find none. We find this in Daniel chapter 6, verse 4. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel regarding government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption because he was trustworthy, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Did you catch that? Daniel obeyed every law. The only way to entrap Daniel was to create a new law that they knew, given his faith in the God of Israel, he would not be able to keep. What the example of Daniel and the teachings of Paul work together to commend to us is that because all authorities have been granted their authority from God, we must obey them in all possible ways, short of disobedience to God himself. So that was the first way in which Paul has commended us to submit. Secondly, because all earthly authorities are instituted by God and fall under his lordship, we must submit by supporting them in their efforts, and that's the gist of Romans chapter 13, verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Pay to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. When the governing authorities give their full time to governing, we become indebted to them for their service to us. In simple terms, they serve God by serving their constituents, and we must support them in their endeavors, recognizing that they are doing work which has been instituted by God. Simple enough, right? Well, maybe not. What if through the government my money is supporting things that go against God's expressed will? What if the government is requiring me to do things that the government's own laws says it cannot require? What if the government is interfering with my personal autonomy in immoral ways? The same issues could have been raised regarding the Roman government. And yet Paul did not discuss any exceptions to this general principle. Unless a government is requiring us to disobey God's expressed will for us in the scriptures, our general posture is not only submission, but participation. Paul includes in this commendation even a practice that was widely considered a tyrannical, corrupt, and immoral imposition of the Romans, that of the collecting and paying of taxes. Because we are indebted to those who spend their full time in our service, we must support them in their service to us. There's one more aspect of Paul's teachings in Romans 13, 1-7 that we have yet to address. It can be found in verse 5. It says, Therefore it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Punishment is the realm of earthly governments in this passage, but conscience is the realm of God in the ensuing context of chapter 14. In light of the sword the government bears, and in light of the God who placed said sword in its hand, we must be submissive and supportive of those who rule over us. This submission is the general principle by which we live, knowing that God is the ultimate authority, and only if we have to choose between God and government should we choose to disobey. Of course, what is clear from Scripture is that we must refuse to submit to commands to go against God's will, because God is the ultimate authority over all others. Nonetheless, 
refusing to submit in ungodly activities, does not negate the general principle of submission, even to that same government and everything else. The Apostle Paul has provided us with a primary preposition, which is qualified by an underlying assumption. Because all earthly authorities are instituted by God and fall under his lordship, we must submit ourselves to them in all possible ways. But there is a qualification. Because all earthly authorities are instituted by God and fall under his lordship, we may be called upon to disobey earthly authorities out of submission to God as the ultimate authority. Some of us have sinned against God by worshiping organizing documents as the source of their lives, the foundation of their rights, and the means by which they and their nation will be saved. Some of us have worshiped the Western God of nation and of national polity. We must repent. Others of us have sinned against God by our refusal both to submit to governing authorities and to peaceably cooperate with them to ease the burden of their responsibility. We too must repent. Others of us have sinned against God by submitting to governing authorities in areas that God has explicitly told us to do otherwise. Judges have succumbed to pressure to pass down verdicts that are not just. Politicians have violated God's teachings by taking bribes or by operating out of bias or personal gain. The list could go on. All such people must repent. As God once set his face against the gods of Egypt, so God is now waging war against the gods of the West. Come out of loyalty to these gods, those who wish to follow Jesus. Do not participate in their judgments. God will gather his faithful ones. But to those who pay homage to the false gods of the West, God will not deliver you.